I have a friend who's a farmer, and uh, they have sheep, and uh, he told me once he'd had to go to A&E, uh, and I asked him why that was so, and he said, uh, when they were rounding up the sheep, he's got an excellent sheepdog, which would round up most of the sheep, but he and his mate used to get very excited if sheep would just run away, because it meant that they could go on the quad bike and get after them, and so they would, the two of them would be on a quad bike, and they'd they'd make it to the, the same speed as the sheep alongside. And then their great joy was for one of them to leap off the quad bike and wrestle the sheep to the ground and bring it back to the fold. Which kind of gives a new uh, dimension to some of Jesus' stories about shepherds and sheep. If you think about where Jesus leaves the 99 and goes off for the one, but this time on a quad bike, there's, so, there's just something a little bit different about it. Anyway, Jesus telling, uh, as usual, a, a very sort of agricultural metaphor again in his, in his teaching and in his stories. And uh, one of the things that Jesus' stories do is, is really honor people's everyday life. I think it's a really uh, wonderful thing. We know that Jesus honors our everyday life. Let's say, you know, our lectures and our essays or making uh, sandwiches for the kids or doing our tax return or going to work or, uh, you know, um, going to the pub in the evening or something like that. Just the stuff that fills up our lives and, it's, and generally good stuff. Jesus tells stories about ordinary life. And ordinary life for them was usually agricultural and uh, often about sheep and shepherds. And so in this um, passage in John 10, uh, do keep it open, on your phone or in a Bible, a physical Bible, if um, you have one near you. John 10, 1 to 21. For the first, two, first few verses, Jesus sets the scene. And uh, it's a scene that would have been really familiar to them because it was, the, it was the ordinary life of sheep and a shepherd. He says there's a sheep pen, and the pen is full of sheep. And uh, on the pen there is a gate. And then he says, if you see someone climbing over the wall to get to the sheep, well, that person's a thief. But if you see someone coming in through the gate, that's going to be the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd of the sheep is let in by a gatekeeper. And when he, when he comes to his sheep, he calls his sheep by name. He speaks out their names and they come to him. And the sheep hear his voice. And the sheep then follow him out of the pen and follow him out um, into pasture. And when, he, uh, when he's brought them out, he leads them to pasture. So he walks in front of them doesn't go on a quad bike this time. He walks in front of them and they follow him because they recognize his voice. However, if the shepherd was a stranger, then those sheep would run away and would need to be rounded up again. So it's a very pastoral scene. It's a, it's a, it's a scene that all of them would have recognized. And, uh, but there is a little subtext in there, I suspect, which is that Jesus is saying there is a decision for the sheep on who to follow because there's thieves there's robbers there's hired hands and there's the shepherd and they're all trying to get in legitimately or, or illegitimately to come and get the sheep and uh and so i think he's saying to the pharisees who he's speaking to very clearly you can see that in verse one uh you know should you follow the voice of the religious elite should you follow the voice of the roman leaders or should you follow me says jesus i think that's something of the subtext but Jesus sets the scene, and I think it must be somewhat disheartening for him that uh, after riffing on this extended metaphor about shepherds and sheep and things like that, he says, 
It says, there's a little line that says, the Pharisees haven't got a clue what Jesus is talking about. I think they're, try, they're probably thinking to themselves, what is he getting at? What does he, what does he mean? And so Jesus tries again. And in the next verse, makes a very unexpected declaration, if you like. So he set the scene, and, and it's as if he's saying to them, here's the scene, here's the shepherd and the sheep. And then Jesus says, so where am I? Where am I in this scene? Where do you see me? It's a sort of where's Wally or spot the ball competition. And Jesus makes the rather surprising declaration. He says, I am the gate. I am the gate. Now, in those days, people would know that shepherds uh, at nighttime would quite often uh, lie down in the gateway in order to protect their sheep uh, so that they would be there if, if anyone uh, came to take sheep away, uh, but also to keep the sheep in the pen. As Jesus says, I am the gate. So he's essentially saying, if anyone enters through me, he goes on to say, they will be saved, they will be safe. And then they will go in and go out as well and find pasture. The thief comes to kill, but I have come, says Jesus, to give you abundant life. So it's, it's really as if Jesus is presenting himself, when he says, I am the gate, presenting himself as a boundary. A boundary you have to cross in order to know God and know life in all its fullness. You have to go through him to get to God and you have to go back through him to get back into the world following wherever he leads so Jesus is absolutely the main man he is central to everything so it's a, it's a bold claim that he's making at this point I remember some years ago I was part of a book club and I was the only obvious Christian in the book club and we would uh, read a novel a month and then discuss it over a meal and um and novels are always about stuff like redemption and um, uh, coming home and all this sort of thing. So it would often turn towards, um, a quote, they would say to me, well, John, you're an obvious Christian. You know, what, do, what, what does Christianity say about this? And it would give me an opportunity to say something about Jesus. And the objection that I used to get from people was usually, in particular from one person, she would say, oh, I really like, you know, I like reading the Bible and I do like praying and I like the spiritual life. Um, but I cannot, I cannot at all get on with Jesus. And I would say, well, that's a real shame because he is the main man. He is absolutely central to all the Bible, to all the prayer, to all the spirituality. Because Jesus says that so himself. He says, I am the gate. You come to God through me and you go back out into the world through me. Jesus is making a very strong claim that you cannot come to God or live a life following God without going through Jesus. He's central. You can't go around him. If you think you can have a spiritual life without Jesus being central, then Jesus himself is going to be your main problem. You will have to deal with him and what he says. And uh, as Nathan Johnson reminded us last week of the I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, and so on. And also Jesus is both very direct and indirect claims to be on a par with God Almighty himself. Jesus is really putting himself out on a limb. He's either, in saying, I am the gate, spectacularly right or spectacularly wrong. 
C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia Chronicles, put it like this. He's, it's a famous quote of his. You must make your choice, says C.S. Lewis. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So straight away, this is very controversial for the Pharisees. I am the gate, says Jesus. I am absolutely central to everything that goes on uh, in life and in the, life, uh, in the spiritual life. So that's the first thing he says. And then he shifts, um, or he, it's as if he plays the game again. He says, okay, I said where I'm, I am the gate. Now where am I? Where am I in this scene? Sheep, shepherd, hired hand, thief, gate, pasture. Where am I? Where am I? And so he says the more famous statement, which is, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The Greek word for good there is this word kalon, which um, not just, doesn't just mean good in the sense of morally upright, but good in the sense of beautiful. And we were singing earlier about Jesus being the beautiful one. And sometimes when we sing that, it's kind of, it feels slightly, you know, a sort of Jesus is my girlfriend kind of song. But uh, Jesus self-identifies and self-designates himself as the beautiful one. He is the beautiful one. He is so wonderful, so attractive, so extraordinary that as a sheep, and we are the sheep in this story, as sheep, we, we want to follow him because he is the beautiful one. He is the good shepherd, the beautiful one. And Jesus defines what it means to, for himself to be the good shepherd, the beautiful one. And he says, basically, in this very short paragraph around the good shepherd, he says the same thing five times. So it must be the key to what uh, being a good shepherd is. And that is that the good shepherd is defined by laying down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd is defined by laying down his life for the sheep. Think of that just for a moment. A shepherd, a human being, laying down his life for the sheep that he keeps in a pen and wandering around the fields with. That's unusual. I was thinking as a shepherd, you must get paid a lot to be ready to lay down your life for the sheep, for sheep. Let's think for a few moments of what it, what it means. In a very literal sense, to lay down our lives for another. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for a brother. Laying down your life. Uh, years ago, I read a, a... I like reading obituaries, because they always have great stories about great people. And um, I was reading this one, and this name came out at me, which was uh, Randy California. There was this bloke called Randy California. So I thought, that is a great name, and I must read what he was about. Randy California was, a, was an excellent guitarist in the 60s and 70s, and for a few weeks he played in Jimi Hendrix's band. And Jimi Hendrix had two Randys in his band. Of course he did. And uh, one came from California and one came from Texas, so he called one Randy California and the other Randy Texas. And California's name stuck for the rest of his life. 
And he died young. He died in his 40s. I mean, that's young, you know, uh, just so you know. Um, uh, he died in his 40s. And I was thinking, well, you know, uh, kind of rock musician, um, uh, guitarist, 60s and 70s. May maybe it was, you know, substance abuse or something, which is extremely prejudiced of me because Randy California died in the most noble way possible. He was visiting his mum, who lived in Hawaii, and he took his son, Quinn, who was 12 years old, out surfing. And they went out onto these, you know, these amazing beaches and waves, and they got caught in a really appalling riptide, and they were being sucked out to sea very fast. And, um, and, they, and they were losing strength very fast as well as they were trying to uh, deal with that. And with his last strength, it seems, that, that Randy California managed to push, with all his strength that he had left, his son onto a wave so his son could get in. And, and Randy California's body was never found again. And he had given up his life. He laid down his life, literally, so that his son could live. And we all hope, uh, as parents, that if that kind of terrible moment arrived, that we would die for our children something that we would hope to be innate. But, you know, we also know that fear and self-preservation is strong in us too. So we would die for our kids. And then it's a further stretch to die for people that you may have just, you barely know, or may, maybe not really know at all. So another story, there's a, a, and he's, a, he's quite a famous person from the Second World War, there's a man called Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Polish priest imprisoned in Auschwitz for helping save Jews and helping the Polish underground and that kind of thing. And in 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz, which is pretty unusual in itself. And so in retaliation, the Nazis uh, picked 10 men uh, to be starved to death in an underground bunker so that they would deter further escape attempts. And when one of the selected 10... Uh, shouted out he just he couldn't help himself when he was pulled forward and he shouted my wife my children like this Colbert who hadn't been picked stepped forward and said I'd like to I'd like to be uh, to die in this man's place would you let him go free and I'll take his place and uh, so the offer was accepted and so the priest and nine others were locked up in this underground bunker and they were left there for, to starve to death for two weeks without food and water. And the, the, a janitor at the time had seen them in there, and he said, basically, this man, Kolber, was leading people in prayer during that uh, absolutely appalling thing. And uh, he died along with them. And John Paul II, recognizing such a Christ-like action, like properly like Jesus, uh, had him canonized and made a saint in 1982. So we recognize that it's really extraordinary to die for someone you hardly know. It's really extremely unusual to die for a fellow prisoner when self-preservation is so strong in us. And so that action was rightfully honored. Now, in those contexts, you die for our children, you die for people you barely know, Let's consider Jesus who insists five times that he is the good shepherd and voluntarily lays down his life for his sheep. It's a demonstration of love almost to the point of insanity. And in fact, at the end of the passage, you will have heard Jack say, uh, 
the Pharisees say, either this man is demonized or he is raving mad. They, they, they recognize this. He's not even dying for his family. He's not uh, dying for other shepherds in this, in this metaphor, but he's dying for the sheep. So I think what Jesus is doing here is giving us some pretty industrial strength truth. That Jesus is the gate and he's the good shepherd. And he's saying this about himself. It's not something that we have to infer from his actions. Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. We come to God only through him. We have the extraordinary privilege of hearing his voice. We're able to follow him through our lives wherever he leads. Wherever he leads. But he is God and we are not. And yet he lays down his life for us. We are, in the sheep metaphor, we are fluffy sinners, if you like, who go our own way, who are, as the prophet Isaiah said, or we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone our own way, but God has laid on the suffering servant uh, the sin of us all. We are fluffy sinners, and God is not. And despite that seemingly unbridgeable gap between us, the Good Shepherd voluntarily lays down his life for us, anticipating that he would be brutally executed on a cross in the near future so that we could come to God, so that we could receive forgiveness, and so we could enter into the abundant life that the Good Shepherd promises. So he's gone way beyond, way, way beyond. And he does that because he is God. He is God. Let me take it even slightly further. Uh, St. Paul puts a spin on it, which is this. He says, God, in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we are still in a state of rebellion against God, while we are still his enemies, Christ died for us. And so the good shepherd essentially is saying that in laying down his life, he releases towards us a tidal wave of grace and mercy and kindness. That's where everything starts. That's where everything starts. We cannot earn our way with God at all. Everything starts with the grace of God that the good shepherd will come and lay down his life for us so that we can know God. The 18th century slave trader or people trafficker, John Newton, who you may have heard of, really understood this when he wrote his famous song, Amazing Grace, a forgiven people trafficker. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He understood his own wretchedness, his own, ability, his own inability to get to God. And yet Jesus, the good shepherd, has led him through the cross to God. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's just a, a really beautiful encapsulation of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, as uh, Joe led us at the beginning uh, from Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. And repentance is not where we start. Repentance is always a response to the grace of God. 
Because again, St. Paul says in Romans, it's the kindness of God, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Leads us to turn again towards God. And it's his, it's his mercy and kindness and grace. Uh, that's where everything starts. And we then have the privilege to, we have an opportunity to respond. Sometimes think, uh, people say kind of daft little aphorisms like, God helps those who helps, help themselves. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. People who understand their own wretchedness, as John Newton did. And although we, I imagine, don't have lives like John Newton, uh, we all are incapable of getting to God, but Jesus has made it, made it possible as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So I think it's good. To, you may have been a Christian for a long time or not very long, but wherever you are in your Christian life, I think it's crucial to be regularly re-amazed by grace. That the grace of God is is uh, the thing that separates Christianity from any other uh, pathway or religion. The grace of God that we find in Jesus. And it's good to have a response of amazement. It's good to have a response of repentance and turning back towards God. That's what repentance means. It's good to have a response of worship and just delight and thankfulness that we were lost, but we're, we're, we're now found. And if you're here today and you know that you don't yet have a life with God, a relationship with God, honestly, that can start right now because Jesus has done the things necessary for you to come to God. Our job is to respond. So why don't we respond for a few moments now, shall we? Why don't, can we stand together? <clears throat>